Welcome to Philosophy as a Way of Life. I'm your host, Massimo Piliucci from the City College of New York. And my co-host, Robert Coulter, is from the University of Wyoming. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hi, Massimo. I'm great. How are you today? It's a decent day in New York, but you had more fun than I did in the last few days. You went to Greece, didn't you? I've been back for a few days, but yes, I did some recent traveling in Greece uh, with my wife, big anniversary trip, um, which may come up a little bit in today's discussion. We'll see. <laughs> okay, before we get there, let me, as usual, uh, introduce the next episode of Philosophy as a Way of Life, which will feature a conversation with uh, Caleb Kohe on what it means to follow a philosophy of life. In other words, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of, you know, what does it mean exactly to do philosophy of life. If you're interested in that, join us on Thursday, July 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. To register, you can go to meetup.com and look for the Global Agora. If you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life or check us out on Spotify. Now, today's episode, today's topic is Stoicism for Good Times. <laughs> and what exactly do we mean by that, uh, Rob? Well, that's that's the question, right? And and I like the way you inflect that a little bit because, um, you know, even though the ancient Stoics talked a lot about how philosophy, right, by which they meant Stoicism, is a um, a philosophy of life, a way to live our lives in all circumstances. A lot of the emphasis these days, um, I mean, in mo in the modern Stoicism movement, and when people talk about Stoicism, um, talk about how Stoicism can help us get through tough times, right? When things aren't going so well. Um, you know, in fact, you and I have both written essays uh, fairly recently on how to deal with, uh, how Stoicism has helped us deal with uh, crises, you know, medical crises or other sort of crises in life, right? But um, we don't often talk about uh, how Stoicism helps us when things are going, you know, just swimmingly. So, right. um, yeah. So it's a good question, right? So during the pandemic, I have had the height of the pandemic. Pandemic is not over, as as some people keep denying, but you know it is not over yet. But during the height of the pandemic, um, I got a significant increase in the number of calls from from uh, you know podcasters and you know journalists and all that that wanted to talk about stoicism, which is understandable. And I think it reflects what you just said. Uh, that, is, that is this perception that stoicism is the kind of thing you reach for in the middle of an emergency. Of course, my first response was, um, you know, it certainly, stoicism certainly is useful under, under uh, these kind of circumstances. Uh, when, when things get, the going gets tough, stoicism is certainly helpful. But for one thing, you cannot, it's, it's, it's not a great idea to reach for a tool in the very moment you need it uh, without training, without understanding, you know, early on what the, what the tool is about and how to, how to do it. It's like uh, an analogy that I've used often uh, in the past couple of years uh, is like, you know, if it's the same thing as if you were asking me, okay, I, I need to get into the uh, ring with a professional boxer now. And, you know, can I, can I get some pointers on how not to get pummeled? And I, I, yes, you can, but my best, my bet is you're going to get pummeled anyway. Uh, you know, you're just going to be limiting the damage perhaps, but that's all you can do. 
you really need to prepare for the bad time when the times are not bad. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you, you, you're just not trained. And this is one of the things that I think people have a little bit of a hard time uh, understanding about philosophy as a way of life. That is, this is something you do every day of your life, <laughs> not only when things go, go bad. Do you think that to some extent, this kind of attitude is uh, reinforced by all these talk about life hacks, for instance, and you know, things like that? Life hacks, talk about resiliency or grit. These are terms we hear a lot, right? Is that it's supposed to be some sort of, well, well, the way it sometimes seems to be treated to me is that it's like a basket of tools we can just grab when the going gets tough, right? And um, like you said, I was thinking of a different analogy. It's like, I try to find my fire extinguisher when my kitchen's on fire, right? <laughs> there you go. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a little late. And especially the instructions for the fire right, extinguisher. Right. I, I'm not sure where it is. I think maybe it's under the sink or something. I've never yeah. used one before, but gee, today seems like a time I might want to use that. Let's see if I can figure this out on, you know, when the house is on fire. And it's it's gonna be, I think it's fair to say, less effective if that's the times when we pick it up. So yeah, right. I mean, the idea of as we talk about here on this podcast, but also in uh, in lots of other discussions of this stuff as a way of life right thinking about philosophy as a way of life and stoicism as a way of life in particular i think it's really um useful to remember that we can't just pick it up when the house is on fire right um i think that's important yeah another uh, you know aspect of the question of course is that and this is really about uh, more directly concerned with the title of today's episode is like even if you practice before the the catastrophe or before the setback or before the challenge well that's great but in in fact stoicism in particular and other philosophies of life think of buddhism or other hellenistic, hellenistic philosophies like epicureanism they're just not meant to be only used in a in a situation of setbacks right i mean so it's like think about you know if you're a buddhist you practice every day uh, it's not like it's like wh whether things are going well or not that's it's irrelevant uh it's you, you still are uh, living your life as a buddhist i've argued as you know in the past that um there is really no fundamental distinction between religions and philosophies of life because a religion has the same typically has the same three components of a philosophy of life there's a metaphysics that's a uh, account of how the world works there is an ethics an account of how you should live in the world and then there are exercises or practices right so if you're a christian for instance you know i grew up catholic in rome and uh if you're a christian so your metaphysics deals with things like you know there is a god creator who is all powerful and blah 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 uh if uh the, the ethics um, of course relies on the ten commandments the teachings of jesus and all that sort of stuff the lives mm -hmm. of the saints and the practices include reading scripture meditating on scripture uh you know mm -hmm. reflecting on it uh praying going to church and stuff like that there really is no fundamental difference at least not that i can see between doing that and doing the sort of things that Stoics do. In the Stoics, there is a metaphysics, you know, the universe is made of matter and, and it's regulated by cause and effect. 
there is obviously an ethics, uh, the, the, four the four virtues, the, the three disciplines of Epictetus and all that sort of stuff. And of course, there are practices, right? Philosophical yeah. journaling, different kinds of meditation, etc. So it's really no fundamental <clears throat> difference. Now, it would be really odd if you were saying to a Christian, uh, so you you are a Christian only when there are bad stuff happening. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, you're not. That's right. right. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Um, no, that's right. And and I was thinking about the Christian case in particular when you were talking. Right. Be, I mean, we think about uh, prayers of thanks and things like that that Christians engage in when things are going well. Um, I think that's. I think it's really important to think about. And and the Stoics. I think if you look at the ancient texts, they aren't shy at all about it being the case that these principles are meant to apply in all circumstances, right? It's, it, you know, and, and there are general principles that are supposed to deal with how we, well, it's supposed to guide us in how we deal with the world, however we find it. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just was thinking about some of these and, and um, you know, Examples are all over the place. Epictetus is really great about them, and and I thought maybe I'd just read this first one, right? Yeah, let's let's get into some of the text, text yeah. stuff, and then we can keep uh, the discussion going. Yeah, go yeah. For it. So so here's one, right? Um, what this is uh, Epictetus is in Caridian, uh section six. What then is your own, your way of dealing with impressions? So when you are in accord with nature and you're dealing with appearances, then be joyful. So since then you are joyful about a good of your own. Now, I, I, I just kind of picked that one out um, because it's one that gives general instructions. It doesn't say like when you're, sometimes we right. find passages where they're like, well, you know, when you, like famously Marcus in uh, book two, chapter one of the meditations, when you wake up in the morning, remember you're going to be with meet with miserable, <laughs> you know, untrustworthy right. Right. So that's situational. Right. But here, this thing from Epictetus is uh, not situational at all. Um, it's here's what you do. You deal with, you know, how you deal with appearances is the fundamental thing. And of course, for him, there's other passages where he goes into much more detail about what that means. But it's a general principle. There's no conditionalizing it. We should, in fact, always be dealing with impressions in, the, in that way that I, I, Often people misunderstand, at least in my experience, misunderstand Epictetus when he talks, you know, there's this famous passage where he says, you should talk to your impression, basically, and say, hey, yes. you're just an impression. You might not be yeah. what it is, what you, what you appear to be. Right. But examining the impressions, meaning that we should put some, some distance, basically, or some cognitive distance between the, the first automatic judgment that comes to mind when we are exposed to some kind of stimulus and the actual judgment that we want to come up with, that, is, that doesn't mean that the impressions are always, meaning the first judgment is always wrong. Sometimes you, you put the distance, you look at it and say, yeah, that's right. That was, that was actually correct, a correct judgment. Uh, that's fine. So it is not saying that every single time there's going to be a problem and every single time you're going to change your mind and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. He's right. just saying, you do, that, you do that for all impressions and then we'll see. What, what happens, right? Sometimes your, your concerned, uh, your considered judgment, it will be different from your initial reaction and other kinds it won't, it won't be. In fact, right. arguably, the more you train yourself in Epictetus disciplines, especially the discipline of ascent, <laughs> uh, the more your, 
judgment will be automatically correct. I mean, that he, he says that the third discipline, the discipline of ascent, which is about refining our judgment, uh, the goal of it is precisely to make these things automatic so that, mm -hmm. that from now on, you know, as soon as you see something or, or, or mm -hmm. hear something, et cetera, you have the right reaction without even having to think about it because, because now, you're, now you're used to it. So, yeah, so that's one uh, bit of textual evidence. You had a, another one from Marcus Aurelius, I think. Well, I, I think I wanted to say something a bit more yeah. general before we sure. go into too much more text, right? One of the things that... Um, so, so let me just say something about what you just said, and that bit you're thinking about at the end of Encouraging One, I think. Yeah. Right. It, um, when he says, you know, say to your judgments, right, you're nothing to me, and things like that, right? Uh, say to your impressions. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, and then he says, right, right after that, apply your yardsticks or your measuring device, right? Namely, whether it's up to us or whether it's not, right? He doesn't say whether it's good or bad or any of those things, right? It, exactly. it's, it's all about how we deal with impressions. But one other really important thing that most people who spend much time with the Stoics at all recognize that um, they're committed to the view that um, a lot of what we generally take to be good and bad isn't really good and bad, right? The only thing that's really good and bad are the virtues and and uh, you know the things that are up to us, right? Whether we're living in agreement with nature, you know, Epictetus always says, right, the good things are the things that are in agreement with nature among the things that are up to us, right? And right. the bad things are the things that are against nature among the things that are up to us. So everything outside of those spheres is neither good nor bad. And when we talk about things going well or badly in our lives, we're generally talking about things outside of those spheres, right? I lost my job. I'm dealing with an illness. Um, you know, Someone I care about has recently died, right? We all talk about things, those sorts of things is my life not going very well. On the other hand, right? Things like, hey, I got a promotion at work, or I just got married, or I had kids, you know, I had a child born or something like that, all things going well for us, right? But of course, strictly speaking for the Stoics, none of those things are either good or bad. So it's kind of a mistake and something we have to be careful about um, to talk about um, our life going well and our life going badly has nothing to do with those external circumstances on this on the sort of orthodox strict stoic picture even though we yeah. talk we talk that way reasonably enough and seneca for example is perfectly happy to do that sometimes but now that's a very good point because if one takes stoicism seriously uh then yes strictly speaking there is no such a thing as thing as good times and bad times uh, uh there's only good judgments on your part about whatever times whatever is happening out there <laughs> I, and then or bad judgments on your part those are the right. only things that are strictly speaking good or bad essentially right. yeah. uh, everything else is just stuff happening so stuff happening is uh, the raw material uh, mm. that allows you to practice your your virtue right it's the it's right. uh, Epictetus uses this um, analogy of Socrates playing ball, right? And he says, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ball doesn't matter. What matters is is what you do with it. And right. um, so, yes, that technically speaking, the, the, there is actually no such a thing in terms of externals as a bad or good or good times. 
Although you're right that, that uh, in, interestingly, Seneca is the one that actually uses this more uh, commonplace language. He does that often, uh, mm -hmm. but, he, but he himself is pretty clear that he, that, that distinction yeah. does hold, uh, even, even though the language may become loose. Yeah. Well, and, and he's sort of self-conscious and explicit about when he's using language Absolutely. in the ordinary sense and when he's being strict about it, yeah. um, for sure. And, you know, I think, and that tells us a lot too, when you connect that with this idea that the general approaches to is with how we deal with our impressions right that's where the good and the bad come about and then good times and bad is is kind of um doesn't fit in the in the same way right which which should tell us something about how we're supposed to be stoic in good times i think right um yes. and you know you mentioned i recently returned from greece and yeah, I was sitting there on uh, on a beach overlooking the Mediterranean and, um, you know, eating really good food and, I'm sorry, really preferred food. And, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> preferred uh, wine, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all right. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> which was pretty great. But, um, you know, knowing that we had had this episode coming up and I, was, I I spent some time sort of subconsciously thinking about mm -hmm. um, the sort of stoic approach to sitting there and, and just looking at the sorts of views one gets from the Greek islands and and um, you know it, it's just it's pretty wonderful stuff it seems to me but there's a number of passages that talk about this right shall yeah. we look at one yes absolutely yes um one of my favorite ones on this is from Marcus in uh, book six, chapter 13. This is a pretty famous passage, I think. And, you know, most of my college students anyway, really like this one, but I'll just read it out. Yep. Right? When you have savories and fine dishes set before you, you will gain an idea of their nature. If you tell yourself that this is the corpse of a fish and that the corpse of a bird or a pig, or again, that fine Falernian wine is merely grape juice, and this purple robe some sheep's wool dipped in the blood of a shellfish. And as for sexual intercourse, this is the part where they always get tittery, right? Um, <laughs> it is the friction of a piece of gut, and following a sort of convulsion, the expulsion of some mucus. Thoughts such as these reach through to the things themselves and strike to the heart of them, allowing us to see them as they truly are. So follow this practice throughout your life and where things seem most worthy of your approval, lay them naked and see how cheap they are and strip them of the pretenses of which they are so vain. So I think this is such a perfect passage for this sort of thing. He's thinking about all these kind of luxurious things, right? So, you know, right. sitting on a beach in the Greek islands with, you know, highly preferred food and drink and all of that, right? Um, and, and, and wonderful weather, right? If I strip away, and of course, this stuff is sometimes talked about as a stripping away method, right? Or a stripping yes. method, right? Strip away from all these sort of value judgments about, oh, this is really great food, or this is such a wonderful view or things like that and say, well, I'm eating the corpse of a fish. <laughs> um, or, and I'm overlooking, you know, the sea, right? Something just keeping that right. And it, 
keeping it, you know, without the sort of value judgments we often attach to it, right? And he says, thoughts such as these reach through to the things themselves, right? right. So that ties this course back to the idea of things being neither really good nor bad, other than my own judgments and all of that, as we were talking about. Yeah, the, the, when people read them, especially if they're at the beginning of studying Stoicism or are not studying Stoicism, and they come across this kind of passage, uh, the, the first reaction is, what kind of a you know, psychopath is this guy uh, who, who describes things in that, in that way? But as you say, there is a, there's a point to it that's stripping, uh, reminding yourself, basically, that there is a, a distinction, a very clear distinction between the thing itself and the value judgment. Mm -hmm. That is, we tend to talk as if value judgments were really labels attached to the things themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. Of course, Falernian wine is a good wine. Well, it is if you like wine, for one thing. right? There are people who don't drink wine, or there are people who need to stay away from wine, in which case it's a bad thing. So the thing in itself is neither good or bad. It depends on your value mm -hmm. judgments, which depends on a number of, 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 issue, of factors including physiological ones, of course, but also cultural ones, mostly in mm -hmm. the case of human beings, cultural. One. By the way, um, if anybody's interested in, in, in uh, Falernian wines, you can still obtain it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, made, it's made somewhere at the border between Latium and Campania, which is in Latium is the area in Italy where Rome is. And Campania is where Naples is. And uh, it turns out that there are still a couple of vineyards in that very area. Now, whether they make wine, wine that is just the same as the Falernian that Marcus Aurelius was drinking or not, I, I, I can't guarantee yeah. it. But it still exists. But it was a very famous wine at the time. And that is why it, Marcus mentions it, right? I bet it's still uh, the juice of some grapes, though. Yes, I bet it is, unless it's not wine anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, so it's, a, and it's a, now the question often is, you know, why would you want to do this kind of exercise? As I said, first of all, is because you want to remind yourself that judgments are not inherently attached to things. Judgments are yours. And what is the advantage of that? Well, the advantage of that is that you can change your judgments. You, you can't change the things. You know, the wine is what it is. It's outside of your control. The fish is what it is. It's outside of your control. But your value of what is happening, of the experience, of the things in, in themselves, that is, in fact, entirely up to you. And, and again, that doesn't mean that you don't confirm your initial impression, right? If, as, uh, if you are a wine connoisseur and you drink good Falernian, well, then that will confirm the impression that, yeah, this is, this is a good wine. But you are aware that this is, in fact, your judgment and not necessarily a universal judgment under different conditions or different people could think of it differently. Well, right. But of course, strictly speaking, it's not good, right? No, not from a stoic perspective. It's not right, good. Right, right. If we're, be, if we're being stoic, it's not yeah. good. It just seems to be preferred. You know, and this one seems okay. to, right? And I think something that's maybe a bit more fundamental, right, than... Is, is it's not just about like remembrance that my judgments are up to me and and the way the world is isn't yeah while that's certainly true right by my stripping away the value judgments like Marcus recommends from these sorts of things I also prevent myself from having false judgments correct right, right? because all of those value judgments are false yeah right so whether it's good or whether it's bad which is, uh, I mean, I think, you know, what, what is the key 
for you know the orthodox stoic view about all the things that are really bad right it's that they're false judgments right they're false judgments that's right yeah we in the book that i uh, co-wrote co with uh, my friend greg lopez a handbook for new stoics we have an exercise where we ask people to go for an entire week without using the words good or bad for anything other than their own judgments right mm -hmm. And boy, it is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, we've, we've done both Greg and I have actually done the exercises in that book, you know, and, and uh, obviously <laughs> before before putting it out there. And boy, it is really difficult because it's so ingrained in the way we talk normally mm -hmm. that you say, oh, I saw a good movie tonight. It's like, no, you didn't. You saw a movie that aesthetically agreed with your preferences, right? And one of the, the points that we make actually in that exercise is that uh, there is an additional advantage other than the ones that we've discussed so far in, in sort of reminding yourself that things are not inherently good or bad. That is, it becomes an uh, a exercise in rephrasing and giving more detail about what's going on right just like marcos is doing in the in the mm -hmm. bit that you're talking about oh this is not just great food it's a dead fish of a particular kind mm -hmm. uh so this is not just a good movie which is a kind of a generic thing but it's you know it's a movie that i find pleasurable because of these or that or the other so it makes you actually pay more attention uh, to what it is that you're experiencing mm -hmm. using just good and bad are shortcuts that really uh, subsume a lot of detail it, you just not, you're not paying attention really to, to what it really is going on in your experience when you just mm -hmm. say use genetic terms like bad or, or good uh, so but it's but it is challenging you, you know try to do it uh, for for a week you know uh, listeners mm -hmm. and uh, and let us know if that if that how that works out so I like to pick a uh, one of my favorite quotes about this uh, topic that we're discuss discussing. Okay. Um, there is a number of them. First of all, I, when I started looking, uh, I found quotes in all of the major authors. I mean, this Marcus, Epictetus, Seneca, uh, even Musonius Rufus. Yes. But there's this one by uh, Seneca, which is a little long, so so forgive me for this, but you know, bear with me. Um, but it's one of those things that. At the same time, is you know you don't find frequently in Stoic writings. I think for a for a good reason, uh, but when you do find it, you, you're reminded that in fact Stoicism isn't about the stiff upper lip and and only tragedy and and, and setbacks and stuff like that. So listen to this. This is from Seneca's "On the Shortness of Life," section seventeen. If people are interested. Solitude will cure us when we're sick of crowds, and crowds will cure us when we're sick of solitude. Neither ought we always to keep the mind strained to the same pitch, but it ought sometimes to be relaxed by amusement. Socrates did not blush to play with little boys. Cato used to refresh his mind with wine after he had wearied it with application to affairs of state. And Scipio would move his triumphal and soldierly limbs to the sound of music. Men's minds ought to have relaxation. They rise up better and more vigorous after rest. We must not force crops from rich fields, for an unbroken course of heavy crops will soon exhaust their fertility. And so also the liveliness of our minds will be destroyed by unceasing labor. But they will recover their strength after a short period of rest and relief, for continuous toil produces a sort of numbness and sluggishness. It does also good to take walks out of doors that our spirits may be raised and refreshed by the open air and fresh breeze. Sometimes we gain strength by driving in a carriage, by travel, 
by change of air or by social meals and a more generous allowance of wine. At times, we ought to drink even to intoxication, not so as to drown, but merely to dip ourselves in wine, for wine washes away troubles and dislodges them from the depths of the mind and acts as a remedy to sorrow as it does to some diseases. Now, you get a very different picture of stoicism if you, if you look at this, this particular quote. First of all, let me point out, because some people might otherwise be being disturbed by this, that when he says Socrates did not blush to play with little boys, <laughs> which from modern standards doesn't sound very good. Um, what he's talking about is the fact that, of course, as it was the case in ancient Greece, uh, uh, Socrates as a senior Athenian uh, was often playing with little boys, meaning it was actually in the acting as an instructor uh, to younger men. Right? If you read a lot of the Platonic dialogues, that com comes across very clearly. One of my favorite bits in what I just read is Scipio, who was um, a you know, famous uh, Roman general who uh, defeated Hannibal. Uh, he moves his triumphal and soldierly limbs to the sound of music. I'm just imagining Scipio doing this kind of movement. But the general... Break the general, dancing or something. Yeah, exactly. Break dancing or something, right? But the general idea is really one of, like, you know, chill out, basically. It's just relax because, because you, you cannot and you should not always be serious and always be after the, the, the serious stuff. Uh, the human mind does need relaxation. He mentions mm -hmm. travel, he mentions drinking wine and all that sort of stuff. All of these things that are typically not associated with a stoic life, right? Like, no, wait a minute. I thought that stoics were, you know, going around with a step off a lip, upper lip, and that was it. Um, I mean, that, that idea is echoed in Marcus. I mean, just off the top of my head, a couple of passages like the, the idea about people seek retreats for themselves. Right. And Marcus says, you don't always have to go to the beach in the Greek islands or wherever it happens to be. Uh, um, but we need retreats. Right. And then there's the other passage when he's trying to rouse himself out of bed. Right. Um, right. I rise to do the work of a human being. He says, but we need our rest. Yeah. But nature sets a limit on it. Right. Um, so right, both both of them certainly recognize the need for rest and relaxation and ease of mind and so on right it, it it'll sap it'll sap us if if we're constantly at the grindstone i think that's i think exactly. that's really important before we go on let me remind the live audience uh on this in the, on, in the, on the show that it is time to uh, ask some questions if you have them so just put them in the chat and direct them to either myself or rob um what um what's your next favorite passage on, on this? Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to try something and see if we can maybe turn this passage around a little bit. Okay. One of the, so I'm thinking about Enchiridion three, mm -hmm. and and this is a passage the passage about uh, I'm fond of a jug passage. Ah um, yes, a lot of <laughs> another people controversial one. <laughs> right, people recoil from this passage a lot. Right, and I'll just read it and we'll start there. In the case of everything attractive or useful that you're fond of, remember to say just what sort of thing it is, beginning with the least little things. If you're fond of a jug, say, I'm fond of a jug. For then when it's broken, you will not be upset. If you kiss your child or your wife, say that you're kissing a human being. For when it dies, you will not be upset. Right? And that's one that people always recoil at, I, in my experience anyway, right? Because it's for two reasons, right? One is it's suggesting that your wife or your child or the death of your wife and child is like a jug breaking or right. Um, right. And the other is that we're supposed to not be upset by it. 
Um, and I and I sort of understand why people might recoil from that. Um, although I think it's, um, I think I think I think there's something to be gathered here from that, right? And and so there's two aspects of this, right? The one part that I think jumps out to most people as we're talking about the drug breaking or the child or wife dying, right? But the other part is that he talks about that being something that you're fond of. I mean, so just fond of maybe in the case of the jug, right. but uh, you know, something that you really love in the case of your of your spouse or your child, right? And um one of the things I think that's going on in this passage is that Epictetus is um, advising us to, again, understand, right, the, the, as you put it, the difference between our judgments about the thing and the thing, and also that, you know, the only thing that's truly good or bad is is my way of dealing with impressions, right, yep. and that the loss of the jug or the or the death of the spouse or the child is not a bad thing nor is it a good thing of course um but i think in both cases what's being counseled here i mean let's see whether you buy this in the okay, end right yeah. but but what i think what's being counseled here is an appropriate attitude of appreciation for those things as they really are right as your your favorite jug is right while recognizing this so a jug and jugs are the sort, sorts of things that break i can be appropriately fond of them as long as i keep that sort of perspective in mind in the same way i can have an attitude of appreciation and valuing uh as preferred strongly preferred probably uh the spouse or the child and the time right. you have with that with that other person right recognizing that they're the sort of thing that um, sort of thing that dies um, puts us in a better position to truly appreciate and be grateful for their presence in your life uh, for as long as uh, you have that. Is that you buying that at all? Yeah, I actually, I, I, I actually do. Uh, it, you know, we've disagreed in the past on 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 uh, some some of these interpretation of uh, these kind of interpretation of Epictetus, and there yeah. are. You know, I do. Well, let me first say, I guess, what I, where we might have a disagreement, though I'm not sure. And then when I definitely fully agree with what you just said. Okay. So the the when these kind of passage comes up, you know, kiss your wife goodbye and you know good night, and mm -hmm. so that then you're not gonna uh, be disturbed. I see that uh, in part as motivated by the ancient Stoic view of providence. Right. So. According to the ancient Stoics, as, as we know, the universe is a living organism endowed with logos, with the logos. So it's based, so which means that everything that happens in the universe is for the good of the universe, not our good. Uh, it's, it's, it's great for the universe. And we are bits and pieces of the universe. And so by implication, everything that happens to us is good for the universe. The analogy that I, that I like to bring up is we are like, like cells on the universe, like the cells on my skin. And in order, as it turns out, uh, the cells on my skin have to die every couple of weeks in order for my skin to regenerate. And so it's good for me. But if I were looking at things from the point of view of a single cell on my, on my skin, I would say, what the hell, why, why do I have to die? <laughs> this, is, this is not fair. This is not right. But if I remember that, well, I am, in fact, 
I'm doing my part as part of the cosmic organism, not only it's okay for me to die, I actually need to be, I should be happy about it because I'm, I'm fulfilling my function. Of course, if you're a modern Stoic and you don't believe in, in Stoic providence, you don't believe that the universe is a living organism and all that sort of stuff, that makes, that makes it more difficult for you to uh, go so far as to embrace, you know, the, the famous uh, Amor yeah. Fati that Nietzsche came up uh, much later on, right? I mean, you still need to accept it because there's no choice. And so the rational, you know, when something is inevitable, the rational thing to do is just to keep, be prepared and accept it for what it is. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you need to embrace it. So that's the can caveat. I, yes, can ahead. I just jump in? I, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. We've disagreed on the role that that idea plays in other passages, but I'm not sure it plays a role in this passage or needs to, right? I, no. While it may be right, I think that Epictetus may have this in, in the back of his mind when, yeah. when thinking about this. I'm not sure you need it for, for the passage the way I'm interpreting No, and that's why I'm going to agree with you. So okay. the, next, the next bit was, no, I, I, tend, I, I think I agree with, with your interpretation of this passage. Uh, it reminds me of another, one of my absolute favorite passages in, in Epictetus when he talks about figs in winter. Right. So when he says, if you want a thing in winter, you're a fool because there is no such a thing as a thing in winter. Figs don't, don't flower in, in winter. But he also says you need to appreciate the figs in the summer, in the proper season. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just that passage. It's not just berating one of his students and, and telling him, you know, you're an idiot. Why are you why you want figs in winter? That's that's stupid. He's saying you really need to pay attention when the figs are around. If you appreciate the figs, then pay attention because what happens otherwise is that the, the, the fig season passes by and you forgot to buy figs and you forgot to enjoy your figs and now you're missing them, right? And so I think that that is what Epictetus is implying at the very least in passages like this. That is, there's not just a negative part, you know, get used to the fact that these people are mortal and so just like it is in the nature of jugs to break, it is in the nature of human beings to die. That's true. And I actually find that helpful as a reminder, because as you know, unfortunately, especially in modern society, we tend to ignore death, not to talk about death and all that sort of stuff, right? as if it didn't exist or as if it is never going to happen to us. So I, I appreciate that part, but I think there is a positive component. And the positive component is, and while this, before that happens, enjoy your jug, enjoy your wife, enjoy your child, precisely because they're not going to last forever, mm -hmm. right? Because if they lasted forever, I'm not so sure that human psychology would actually allow us to appreciate things. Mm -hmm. If you have something forever, literally forever, I'm not, I don't mean, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who disagrees with, with me about this, about the nature of immortality um, and what would happen if we were immortal. Man, many people tend to think of immortality when we're talking about mortality as just living longer. And of course, living longer, you know, we all agree. Sure. If, if somebody tells me, hey, you got 10 extra years or, you know, 50 extra years. Yeah, I'll say yes. But the question is immortality. Mortality literally is forever. So it's not a question of more. It's a question of never ending. And philosophers, as you know, have argued that if, in fact, we were immortal, things will lose meaning um, because they're not precious. There's no sense of anything being precious anymore. Everything is going to happen an infinite amount of times. And, and therefore, at least in the way in which the human psychology is built, you're just going to get bored 
to the death and the, 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 that's going to be a torture at some point become a, becomes a torture now Epictetus, i don't think he's thinking about immortality but he's thinking yeah. about the fact that one of the things a major thing that makes things precious and people precious is precisely the fact that they're temporary it's precisely yeah. the fact that every i mean you find this of course repeatedly in marcus aurelius and it's, mm-hmm. marcus says that over and over you know, remember these things these things are gonna are gonna go and and the stoics did take that that aspect of their metaphysics from uh, the one of the pre-Socratic philosophers, Heraclitus, the, the guy who famously said that you never step in the same river twice, right? Because yeah. because it's never the same river. Um, all right, we yeah. got a few more minutes. You want to have um, uh, um, something else? Uh, another another bit to read and discuss. And it looks like there is also something in the chat, so I'm going to look at it and and see if we. Yeah, want. I mean, so. So one other sort of big theme, I think, in thinking about this, and I thought about this a lot while I was sitting on the beach in Greece, right? This, um, or as I actually, I thought about it more when I was sitting in um, our hotel in Athens and looking up at the Parthenon and you know the Acropolis and things like that. And um, it's this famous idea that gets encapsulated in in the idea of the view from above that, uh, you know, Pierre Hadot, I think he coined the phrase really, right? But of course, people like Donald Robertson have have talked a lot about recently. Um, And I'll just read this passage again too, right? A fine reflection from Plato. This is uh, from Marcus's Meditations, book seven, chapter 48. Mm -hmm. One who would converse about human beings should look at all things earthly as though from some point far above upon herds, armies, and agriculture, marriages and divorces, births and deaths, the clamor of law courts, deserted wastes, alien peoples of every kind, festivals, lamentations, and markets, this intermixture of everything and ordered combination of opposites, right? And that's just one passage uh, in which Marcus sort of uh, engages in this view from above exercise. There's a bunch of them scattered throughout the meditations. But the idea that Whatever's happening right now is just part of a giant cosmos of things going on, not just right at this very moment, right, but right. over across time and space. And, um, you know, as I was sitting there looking up the Acropolis, thinking about all of the, how many people have walked up that hill, right? How many people have wandered among temples up there um and uh you know it's mind-boggling to think about how many steps have been taken across that place i mean you know how many even from before when the parthenon was built 2500 years ago yeah yeah that's right um and you start thinking about that and not only i mean so again in the idea of building our resilience Stoicism reminds us to think about the vastness of of the cosmos and all the different things that have gone on uh, to remind us that whatever troubles we might be having um, are not really that big of a deal on a cosmic scale. But I think we can also turn that around again, too, to remind us that the wonderful things, right, in our ordinary vernacular that are happening to me in this life are also on a cosmic scale. Not that big of a deal. Right. 
That's right. Uh, we have a couple of questions that I, I'd like to pose to you, uh, yeah, bring sure. up for discussion. So Neil is, is saying uh, that we mentioned early on that only judgments should have a value status, good or bad. Well, this doesn't give guidance as to how these judgments should be formulated. That is, you know, how do, how do, you, how do you actually arrive at a good judgment, a correct judgment? Ah, right. Well, so the, the orthodox answer is, right, that um, it, it's our virtuous judgments, right? The ones right. that get things right, that are in agreement with nature, right? Yeah. So when I, when I judge, um, when I make the judgment that I ought to say, for example, just to use a, a if I'm Cato and I judge that I ought to oppose Caesar here because that's the courageous and just thing to do here, right? Then I, assuming that that's right, um, that it is the just and courageous thing to do, then uh, that's the right kind of judgment. That's truly good, right? And thus I, I assent to that impulse, right? You talked about discipline of assent, right? I assent to that being the thing I have to do, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that the 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 crucial bit in what you just said is in agreement with nature, right? So yeah. the criterion, according to the Stoics, is that a good judgment is a judgment that is in agreement with nature. Of course, we can have reasonable disagreements in any particular situation about what exactly counts as in agreement with nature. And, and that's a big topic that maybe actually, Rob, we should make a note of, of addressing at some point in the future, because... This notion of in agreement with nature uh, is connected to both science, uh, you know, it's like because we're talking about human nature in particular, especially. So, is there such a thing as human nature, uh, and what does it consist of? And the Stoics have some ideas about that, but it would be kind of interesting to talk about it. And more broadly, the notion of good judgments being being in agreement with nature is linked to the the broad. Uh, topic of uh, natural law, right? So this notion that there is there is a law of nature, not just in the sense of the law of gravity, that there's that too, yeah. but there are ethical laws of nature for social right. beings like human beings, right? That there right. are some things that are, and, and that is of course controversial, although it has a long tradition. It goes mm -hmm. back to the Greco-Romans for sure. It was articulated by uh, Christian theologians throughout the Middle Ages. And it's yep. still the basis today, uh, surprisingly, of things like, you know, varying from, from the American uh, Bill of Rights to the, the, the UN Declaration of uh, Human Rights. Yep. You know, it's the basis of the notion that when we say that a law is unjust, well, on what criteria do we, human law, on what criteria do we, on what basis do we say that a law is unjust? Well, apparently we're referring to something else. There is, yeah. We're implying at least that there is such a, a, a broader criterion that goes beyond specific human laws or positive law as them. It's sometimes referred to yeah. that allows us to say whether a law is just or not. And the same goes for the Stoic notion of living in agreement with nature. So there are some broad criteria that allow us to say, this is virtuous, this is not virtuous. Yep. Uh, and, and so, but that is a huge topic. So we yeah, it talk, is. Yeah. Should, should talk about it. At some, some I'm just going to, I'm going to keep my yeah. mouth shut on that one for now. <laughs> okay. But yeah, uh, let's, let's file that away. Let's That's put it on the list. One. Yeah. Um, let's see. I have another question or comment uh, from Franklin. 
he's going back to what we were talking actually about very early on at the beginning of this of the show. He says, adding to the examples uh, at the beginning of the podcast in 12-step programs, you should care, you should call your sponsor every uh, regularly so that when you need direction or assistance, you are comfortable calling and talking to your sponsor. In other words, you don't call him just when there is an emergency. You call him on a regular basis. If you never call your sponsor and suddenly you have an obsession to drink or use, it's difficult to pick up the phone and call for, for direction. And yeah. it can make, in fact, in those cases, the difference between life and death. That's, yeah. that's what I was saying earlier on, that you don't just pick up the practice of stoicism when the crisis, when you're in the middle of the crisis. That, that would be like learning how to pilot a ship in the middle of a storm it's like that's probably not the best <laughs> not the best time yeah or or another you know like the practice of going to confession regularly or something right? yes that's right exactly to to draw again the analogy between religions and philosophies that's right when yeah. i was a catholic i yeah. would go to, yeah. regularly you know every week not not just when i had sinned whatever that whatever yeah. that means <laughs> and i think you know i i think i haven't thought about this too much but um, I'm inclined to think that a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to think that 12-step programs really are probably a philosophy as a way of life too. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I don't, like I said, I haven't thought that through so that I'm 100% confident about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well inclined that way. Yeah, that you may be, you may be right. I mean, one of the things, of course, famously in twelve-step uh, programs, especially Alcoholic Anonymous, is that they often start their meetings with the Serenity Prayer, right? Yeah. And the Serenity Prayer is basically Epictetus and Caridian, <laughs> the beginning of Caridian. Yeah. It's essentially the dichotomy of control, uh, rewritten for twentieth century, but uh, but it's essentially the same the same idea. Let's um, let me let me add one more quote from Seneca to our discussion, which goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. So this is from um, one of his letters to Lucilius, uh, in particular, letter 63. And he says, he's talking, the context is that he's talking about the, how to deal with grief for lost friends. So for friends who have either died or moved away, right? And uh, interestingly, at some point, he says, uh, for, fortune is taken away, but fortune is given. Let us greedily enjoy our friends because we do not know how long this privilege will be ours. This is exactly what we were talking about a minute yeah. ago with, with Epictetus, right? It's like, yeah, yeah quite. enjoy. The, there is the positive spin, the positive uh, part side to the, to the notion. Enjoy your friends while you have them precisely because at some point, either they or you are going to go. And, that's and, right. You know, uh, so that's a major reason, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a few more minutes. you have any more uh, favorite uh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, one you picked out um, mm-hmm. to talk about, I think, might be one to bring us full circle, sure. and that's that's the one from Musonius Rufus. Ah, yes, right. Um, and he says, "In our control is the most beautiful and important thing, the thing because of which even the God Himself is happy, namely, the proper use of our impressions." <laughs> right and and that's yep. a great one that brings us full circle right this is what makes even zeus happy, happy. right yeah and happiness really has been nothing to do with whether our lives are going well or badly in our common vernacular right but rather how we respond to the world doing what the world does um and that we use those impressions properly is the key to our, our our happiness i assume i don't have the greek in front of me 
but I assume here it's it's eudaimonia yeah. here, right. Right? right? And which um, you know it's our flourishing, right? That's that's the goal is to flourish, right? And and that's entirely within our hands, and it has nothing to do with whether we're sitting in a hospital bed as. You and I have both done fairly recently. Um, <laughs> That's right. Um, or yes, I was not happy when I was doing when I was doing that, but right. um, but it, I was certainly trying to deal in the best way that I could with my impressions. Right. Yeah, actually, and so that's right. So being you, Diamond, uh, right? Um, I, I, the only thing I completely agree. The only thing that I'm going to slightly push back is when you translate it or you rendered eudaimonia as flourishing which is very common it's this is this is the standard it is the standard translation but i think uh, the more i think about it the more i feel that that translation unfairly favors uh, uh, the aristotelian view of, of things because if you think about it you know when you're in a hospital bed you're not really flourishing <laughs> but you're still using your impressions in the best way ideally in the best way possible so uh, recently i've been translating eudaimonia as just the life worth living which to me makes sense of even the paradoxical and most extreme uh, examples that you hear in the that you hear of in the Stoic literature, such as the notion that the Stoic that the, the sage is eudaimon on the rack, right? It's like, well, if you're on the rack, if you're being tortured, certainly you're not happy in the normal sense of the term. But I would argue you're not even necessarily flourishing if by flourishing you mean I'm being able to pursue my projects and I'm doing, you know, making my choices and all that. No, you're not. You're on the rack. But if you are on the rack and you're still keeping your virtue, you're there for a reason, let's say because, uh, you know, you've been imprisoned because of a good cause, because you, you were trying to defend, you know, sort of, sort of people's rights or something like that, then you're still your diamond. Then you're still, you're still exercising your... Uh, your judgment and your judgment is virtuous. That what, yeah, I'm that perfectly. Started? I'm perfectly happy to to agree with you that there's probably no single one word translation that captures you, Daimon. Right. Um, yeah, fine. Um, cool. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, in the in the in the chat, uh, Janet says, uh, "Well, flourishing can also mean being above the situation as a dynamic state versus growing." Absolutely, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think on that note, uh, we can we can close this thing. Uh, so okay. we have actually tried to give an answer to the question, you know, how the hell does the Stoic live, uh, you know, when things are going well? It seems clear, I think, that uh, that is definitely part of Stoicism. Stoicism yeah. is not just for emergencies. <laughs> Stoicism is not just for setbacks or anything like that. It li literally really is uh, a philosophy for every day. And in fact, it is the appreciation, the correct appreciation of both the so-called good and so-called bad things that, that really distinguishes a, a stoic approach to life. Yeah, I'm I think I'm happy with that for today. I think we've made um, a dent. We made a little bit of a, of a dent. So with that, uh, let me just remind people that the next episode of Philosophy as a Way of Life will feature a conversation with Caleb Cohen on what it means to follow philosophy of life. That is, how do you actually do this thing in practice? Uh, join us for that on Thursday, July the 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to register for that event, go to meetup.com and look for the Global Agora. 
And in the meantime, if you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, including this one, when, when it comes out in a week or two, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life, or check us out on Spotify. On that note, I'll see you soon, my friend. Stay safe. Yep. Thanks. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And good to see you too, Massimo. And, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.